This week on Twip Weddings, we are joined by Jared Platt. Jared is a photographer, writer, and instructor who has probably forgotten more about Lightroom than most people remember. Part of running a successful wedding business is having an efficient workflow, which means finding ways to increase efficiency and spend less time chained to your computer. Jared is here to provide some tips and advice on creating an efficient workflow that can cut your editing time in half, resulting in happier clients, less time behind the computer, and most importantly, increased profitability. And welcome back to another episode of Twip Weddings. Uh, my name is Bruce Clark, and I am joined in the co-host chair by Mr. Brian Capparici. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Bruce. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. No, Excellent. no, Robert Evans today. Robert is on a secret assignment with, with Sony, so he wasn't able to join us today. <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe the next show he can tell us what he was up to. So, but we do have someone else uh, filling in that third chair, and uh, we're really delighted this week that uh, we've got Jared Platt joining us. Good morning, Jared. Good morning. Excellent. So Jared is a, I, I like to consider you a workflow and Lightroom guru. And uh, we brought you on today to uh, give some advice to wedding photographers on how they can streamline their workflow um, so they can hopefully spend less time chained to their computers, uh, editing and more time, either booking more business or enjoying time with their family or uh, pursuing their leisure pursuits or whatever it is they like to do when they're not involved with their business. So we're happy to have Jared on uh, today. Uh, but before we kind of jump into the show, uh, we just want to remind you a couple ways how you can participate in the show. Um, first, you can visit the website at thisweekinphoto.com. Uh, just look for the weddings link. And uh, there you'll find the show notes for each episode. So anything that we talk about, if we uh, provide some links and things like that, those will all be in the show notes uh, for this episode. Uh, if you have a question or a suggestion uh, of a topic that you'd like us to talk about on a future episode, uh, just click on the contact us link at the top of the page. Um, and then select TWIP Weddings from the drop-down list, and that will send a uh, message directly to this show. Make sure you pick TWIP Weddings, otherwise it could wind up, uh, your question could go to some other show, and they may answer it on another show, I don't know, but uh, if you want us to answer the question, <laughs> make sure you pick tw TWIP Weddings from the drop-down list. Um, if you prefer using social uh, social media, just uh, add the hashtag TWIPWED, and on Twitter, we'll keep an eye out for those. And if you want to follow us, uh, we're on Instagram, we're at TWIPWED on Instagram, and uh, we've also got a very active Facebook group. Uh, so just head on over to Facebook and just search for Twip Weddings over on the Facebooks, and we'll add you to our group. So lots of ways to get involved. So without further ado, I want to jump in the show. And uh, like I said, off the off the start there, we've got Jared Platt joining us. And uh, Jared, I'm going to kind of pump the tires here for you a little bit and just give people a little background on who Jared is. Um, and you can feel free to add in if I miss anything. But um, Jared is a, is a photographer. Um, you're a writer and uh, also an instructor. Uh, and you've probably, I think, forgotten more about Lightroom than most people probably remember. Um, so we brought you on today um, to talk about workflow. And, uh, you know, we've talked about workflow and on other episodes uh, a little bit, but we wanted to really kind of dive into workflow this week. Um, and having a good workflow, I think, mean, you know, finding ways to increase efficiency, hopefully spend less time chained to your computer. So um, how are you, Jared? I'm good. I'm excellent. Good. Well, we're excited to have you on this week to talk about workflow. Like I said, I kind of know you as the as the workflow guy. Um, is that how you are sort of known now as are you kind of known as the workflow guy? Yeah, I suppose that I, uh, I'm kind of a character actor. <laughs> so I <laughs> tend to play the part of the guy who knows how to get stuff done. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting to do that because sometimes you, 
you know, you, you see yourself as something completely different because I've always just been a photographer, been a wedding photographer my whole career. Um, I think I'm coming up on my 21st year of weddings. Um, so I've been a wedding photographer for a long time, but the, the way I'm known throughout the community is just in my ability to get things done and my ability to see the quickest critical path to finish the job. Um, and so that's kind of how I became known. But the reason I became known as that is because I was, um, I was, I was going to conferences as an early wedding photographer. I was interested in how other people were doing things and I was looking for solutions to make my job easier. And, uh, when I, when I was going to these conferences, I was, I was hearing all these pain points that people were complaining about, and lecturing about. And I literally, I would, I'd be sitting in a lecture and someone would be telling the crowd, you know, someone who's known as a guru in the industry for whatever, would be telling the crowd how they do their workflow. And I would just be shaking my head like, what are they? That's the worst idea I've ever heard, you know, because it was just like, <laughs> They were, they were really doing bad workflow uh, methods, and yet they were teaching people how to do this. And I was like, this is horrible. You're pulling out so, all your hair. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's why I have no hair. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I was, I was so amazed at how bad the entire wedding industry was. We talk about this often, right, where it's like photographers get into it because they love the photography side of it, and they don't really think about all the other systems and processes and, and the things you got to think about. And workflow is a huge part of that. Um, you know, when it comes to doing your images and editing your images, there's so many ways that we can be more efficient than we're currently being. And if, if you're taking three days to edit a wedding, not only are you wasting a lot of your time, but you're not profitable as a, as a photographer and as a business owner. So it's a huge part of the process. What you were just saying there is a really good point that if someone charges, let's say you charge $500 an hour for shooting. So like that's your amount of money that you're making on the shoot, but it takes you an hour to edit every hour that you shot. Well, now yeah. you just made 250. Yeah. But if it takes you two hours to edit that or three hours, then suddenly you're down to, you know, 60 bucks an hour and then 30 bucks an hour and then 20 bucks an hour. And by the time you, a lot of these people that are taking three weeks to edit a wedding, they're not, they should just quit. Yeah. <laughs> They're paying the client at that stage. Yeah. They, they need to go work for, you know, the Piggly Wiggly or, or the Circle K or wherever they're going to, you know, they just got to work somewhere else. Yeah. A gas station would be a much more profitable um, job if you're, if you're taking that long to edit something. Yeah. Yeah. So plus it's just, I can't imagine it being a fulfilling job when your whole your whole world is in working on these images constantly i mean okay some people and i i was in uh i was in london lecturing a couple years back and i was you know you can read the crowd so as you're talking you can tell who's with you and who's not with you and i was looking over i saw this one girl that lady that was just she was not with me like I was talking about, you know, getting things done quickly. I was talking about not, you know, trying to perfect your images to the absolute perfection because the client couldn't see the difference. And, and so I, I was going through all these 
issues of workflow, and she was just kind of shaking her head. She wasn't with me, and at the end, she comes up to me to talk to me, and I specifically said, "I said, I, uh, I don't think you're agreeing with me. Like you, you seem like you were having problems with what I was saying." And she goes, "Yeah, I'm an artist, and everything I do needs to be perfect because if I send it out into the world and it's not perfect, then I'll know I didn't do my best." And I said. You know, as an artist, you can just enjoy making a piece of art. You know, of the Grand Tetons, or you know, you could hire a model and and you could work to perfection on that. But are you actually having people pay you to do your job? And she says, "Yeah, I'm doing portraits and stuff." And I said, "Well, why? If if it's all just about the art, why do you need to be paid for it?" Like, is, aren't you just an artist? Do you actually want to be paid? And she says, "Yeah, I think I should be paid for my work." And I said, "Okay, well, if you if you actually have admitted that you're a capitalist, which we were in London, and so you know, she was not a capitalist. Obviously, she was a she was a I think she was a communist artist um, because she she had no interest in making money, but she admitted that she wants her clients to pay her for her work. And so once she admitted that, I said, "Look, if." If you have decided that you need to be paid for your work, then it's time to get rid of the idea of becoming a perfectionist because perfectionism never pays. Right. right. Because you could never, nothing's ever perfect. I've never sent out a perfect image in my life. I can't because it would take too long to create a perfect image. And I, I need to actually feed my family. Now, some people just do it for fun. So, if you're just doing it for fun, and your favorite thing to do is sit in front of the computer and type on the keyboard and play with your Wacom tablet and and click pixels, great, go yep. for it. Spend all your time doing that. But if you have a family, if you need to feed them, then you have to get your workflow under control. And that, and like I was saying, I was at these conferences and I was. Amazed at how many people were doing it so poorly, and they were the ones that were teaching. And so, at that point, I decided, okay, I've got to somehow show people the way I do it. Right. Um, and and the the wedding industry and the portrait and senior portraits and stuff—they're the worst about it. Um, commercial photography—they generally have their workflow down um, because they literally are making money. They're trying to make money. That they've they've admitted. I'm. A, I am a commercial so machine. Why, why, why is that? I'm curious as to see why, why do you guys both think that is? Why do you think that commercial photographers, they kind of get the business side of it? Is that because that's the world they're living in? Or I don't know, what do you I, guys think? I think it's because they, you as a, you don't become a commercial photographer. You don't just go buy a camera and then hang and, and decide I'm going to shoot commercial photographs out of my home and I'm going to just randomly get friends as clients, and then those friends are going to refer me, and then suddenly I've got this business, and I don't even know how to run a business, and I don't even know much about photography. I just have this small little Canon camera that I got for my Christmas present because I like photography. That doesn't happen. Usually what happens, and in my case, um, I got out of college, and I went and worked for a commercial photographer as his studio manager. So I learned the business from someone who actually knew the business. So I was watching him work and I was watching him do 
you know, workflow and I was watching him build clients. And so I was learning from someone who was already doing it. And I think that it's more of that. Um, it's, it's more of that old school uh, apprenticeship type of situation when it comes to commercial photography. No one just falls into it generally. Right. Um, whereas with weddings, it's the opposite. People just fall into it. They take some pictures of a friend's wedding and then someone wants them to do theirs. And, and then all of a sudden they have a business and they didn't even know that they were going to become a photographer. Right. Brian, what are, you, what are you, your thoughts on that? Would you echo? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with a lot of that. I think uh, what it comes down to is commercial photographers are aware. I think awareness is a big part of it. When If you're a commercial photographer, you know, you're quoting out a job, you're saying, okay, well, it's going to be this much time for planning, this much time for this, I've got to rent out this gear, I've got to rent out this space, I've got to this. And they're, they're aware of the inputs that are going into a job. Whereas if you were to ask a wedding photographer, hey, what does a wedding uh, cost you in terms of time? What goes into it? Most wedding photographers would be like, I don't know, I shoot for 12 hours. So 12 hours, right? Like They don't really understand the inputs and the variables and all these things that go into it. And so they're much more likely to fall into the trap of uh, just doing things until they're done and not really having an understanding of what goes into it and therefore putting limits around that. You know, I think... Um, whereas commercial photographers are like, hey, listen, this is the job. This is what it's been quoted. The client understands this is the inputs, and therefore that's what I'm going to do. So I think, yeah, I think it's experience plus a combination of them just being aware of the inputs. Yeah, so yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, for both of you guys, then I want to talk about like work, so workflow could mean a, a, a bunch of different things, right? Like we could talk about workflow from just sort of a, 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 a very high at a very high level in terms of the, the overall business. It could encompass everything from you know, booking a client to, you know, all the way through to delivery of a product could be part of your, your overall workflow. Um, but we could also drill into the editing workflow. And I think that's, you know, one of Jared's um, strengths and teaches a lot on kind of that end of things, right? The whole editing and culling process. So, but just at a, at a, at a high level, what does workflow look like for both of you guys? What is, how do you guys think about workflow? I think workflow is is anything that you do systematically as a process. I think that oftentimes we refer to workflow in the industry as like like you said, Bruce, the editing side of things. Mm-hmm. But but I really think that uh, it's much bigger than that. It's not just I use this Lightroom preset or I use this export action or this Photoshop filter. It's filters not the right word. That's Instagram. But anyways, Photoshop action. But it's the the, pro- the process that you actually go through. So I think that the retouching workflow is just one kind of workflow. I mean, Bruce, we've talked on the podcast many times about the customer experience. Mm-hmm. That is a workflow. You know, the process of how you book somebody, that is a workflow. The process of how you prepare for a wedding, in my mind, that's a workflow. So I think anytime that you do something that is multiple steps and it's something that you might do more than one time. So repeatable. I cons- repeatable. repeatable. I consider that to be a workflow. Yeah. Well, there's And there's even workflow... I mean, there's a workflow to the way I light. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, I, I, I specifically have, you know, the first thing I do is I set my background and my mood light, and then I set my main light, and then I set, you know, so, I mean, it's, there's a workflow to every aspect of what you do. Totally. There's a, there's a workflow to how you put your cards into your card wallet so that you don't ever lose the card. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's workflow to, you know, how you format your cards there's a there's a workflow to everything there's a there's so many workflows that go into it but i i, I don't think that uh, most people think of life in 
terms of a checklist or a workflow. Right. I think most people I bet you just kind of, <laughs> only us crazy people that like that like the checklist. <laughs> right, that's right. You know, right. well I I have uh there's a person that I know in my life and I and just in case they ever hear this, I won't say who they are, but there's a person I know in my life that thinks that everything that happens to him happens to him by accident. So, like, for instance, when he got put in prison for drunk driving, he thought it was an accident. And he, and he literally told my wife, he says, you never know when you're going to get picked up and thrown in jail for drunk driving. Well, yeah, I do know when I'm going to do that because I never drive drunk. Right. If I don't drink and then drive, I will never be put in prison for drunk driving. Right. And yet this person thinks that it's an accident that somehow the system conspired against them and they happen to be in a prison for drunk driving. And, and I think the, most of the world goes through their life thinking that things happen by accident. So did you lose some files by accident? No, you lost your photos on purpose. You lost your photos because you purposefully did not have a workflow. And that's why you lost the photos. You know, did you, did you not get a job done in time and the client's now ticked off at you? That's not an accident. That's on purpose. You did that on purpose because you didn't have a workflow and you didn't put yourself in a position to succeed. And therefore, on purpose, you ticked off your client. Because you didn't get the job done, or right. you did it poorly, or you lost their files, or whatever happens to you happens on purpose. It doesn't happen on accident. And I can say with 100% certainty and accuracy that I've never in my entire career lost a file. Not once. Because I've always done everything on purpose. Everything's on purpose. And that's because there's a workflow, there's a checklist. And if you have a checklist, and if you follow the checklist, you don't lose files. Nice. So I want to ask both of you guys in terms of your workflows. And again, we, we can talk about the editing workflow. It could be the you know, booking a client workflow. Um, how I mean, are, there, are they still a work in progress? And how did you learn? Did you learn by making mistakes or did you learn from others? How did you guys both learn your workflows? I know Jared mentioned he heard a lot at conferences and things like that where people were teaching the wrong methods. How did you learn the right methods? Well, I think, I think the learning the right method is tinkering. Yeah. Any, anybody who's going to come up with a system is going to have to tinker. And you, and you can get close to the right method by listening to someone else that's done it. Like someone could go and listen to me and I could give them the checklist and they would be like, okay, that's pretty good. I'm going to follow it exactly. And they would follow it exactly. And then they'd be like, well, but in my situation, I have to provide this extra thing. And so they would have to work something into their workflow to make that possible. Um, or they might remove something because maybe I make a proof book, but they're like, I would never give a proof book to my client. And if that's the case, then great. They just remove that from the workflow. And so there's, everybody has to tinker with things and you'll, and that's how I created my workflow. So we would, I was working in this commercial studio and that's where I started developing my workflow. And I would, I would work on his stuff. And I would find better ways to do it. Like I would just be working one day and I would think, hmm, if I did it this way instead of that way, like for instance, the, the concept, the original um, 
thing that we did at the studios, we would just, we had those, you know, those Lassie drives, those big metal Lassie drives <laughs> yep. that are like little soldiers that sit on your desk. Yep. Well, we had a bunch of those in the studio at this, at this commercial studio. And we would, you know, we'd fill one up. And then as soon as we got to the end of that drive, we'd be like, okay, we got to get another one. And so we were buying drives constantly and we would, cause we never threw anything away. We would just keep it and then get the next one and fill it up and the next one and fill drive it up. Drive hoarders. But yeah. then, <laughs> but then we had to keep a, a spreadsheet that told us on drive number one, I, we would write the jobs in there so that we knew, okay, if we're looking for this job, we go to drive number one. If we're looking for this job, we go to drive number two and so on and so forth. And the, and then what would happen is you'd fill up the drive and then you'd, you'd try and go in and edit the job. And so you'd open up the job and you'd try and save a big, you know, half a gigabyte TIFF. And it wouldn't save because there wouldn't be enough space on that drive anymore. And right. you'd be like, oh, crap. So then you'd have to move the entire job to another, full, another uh, disk. And then you'd have to go into the database and say, now this disk is over here. And I thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then I thought, wait a second. If we just bought a new drive for every year or every quarter or every certain time frame, then... And, and then when we got to the end of that year, instead of trying to add more to that drive, just put it on a new drive. And that gives us space to expand the old drive. We'd be fine. Now, at the time, you know, drives weren't that big. And so we would have to shoot. We would do like, you know, Q1 2015, Q2 2015, Q3, Q4. So we would have different quarters. But but at that point, then I was never filling up a drive so that then if I went into a job and worked on it, I could add stuff to it. and It would just expand the drive, no problem. And so now I have a workflow where every single year has its own drive. And I just put everything from that year into that drive, and that's the archive. But that, that system comes from tinkering from someone else's system where we were running into some problems where it was like, this is getting annoying. So we come up with a solution. And then it turns out that I've even tinkered with my system more. And now I have an even better system where I still have a drive that's here in the studio and I can grab it and plug it in anytime I want. Um, but now I use Google Apps for Work. And so now I have an unlimited storage capacity online. So I archive everything online. So now I've got everything I've ever shot online from the year 2000 until the year 2016. And so now, even if my whole studio burned down, I wouldn't You're lose covered. a file because I have them all on Google. So, so you tinker as new things come about and as you get new opportunities and as you find new equipment, you start to test them and then you find an even better workflow. Right, so those workflows are never, they're never a static thing that's a finished and done and we're never going to go back. And Maybe some things are, but a lot of things are probably constantly, like I say, you're tinkering with them. It's like a recipe, right? You find somebody's recipe for, you know, grandma's recipe for, stu for stuffing, but maybe you don't like so much time in it. So you, you know, you take out some, some ingredients and eventually over time you make it your own. Well, now, now there's a warning to that though, because I have another friend <laughs> and my other friend is a constant workflow tinkerer. Okay. And he will tinker with a workflow and get it to where it's pretty dang good. And then he'll start working on that workflow again. 
and he'll revamp it and he'll revamp it and he'll revamp it and he never actually gets to use his workflow because it's always in flux. Mm. You can't do that. You've got to at one point say, this is a good enough workflow and then go with it and then wait till you run into a snag. And when you run into a snag, that's when you change it. Because, I mean, if you think about that cook who's constantly tinkering with his recipe, if you always tinker with your recipe, you're always going to have an experimental dinner. Yeah. So if you get a dinner that's great, then just leave that dinner for a while at least and enjoy the perfection of that dinner. And then maybe, you know, when you get tired of it, maybe you could tinker with it a little bit and make it different or better or whatever. But you got to at least enjoy it for a couple meals before you start shifting right. the, yeah. you know? Because well, I, I think it comes down to if, you, if you're constantly tinkering and tweaking, you don't really have a workflow because it's different right. every time that you do it, right? right? So I think, I think, and Bruce, we've talked about this in the show a number of times, but it's the idea that uh, a lot of photographers mistake um, motion for progress, right? Like they want to be mm. busy, they want to tinker, they want to tweak, and they feel like they're being productive, but it's not actually doing anything for them. It's the anti-productive. Right. And, and, and I see photographers doing the same thing with branding. You know, like oh, they yeah. want to rebrand and then rebrand and then rebrand. But the, new process, logo every year. <laughs> the process of continually rebranding means that you don't have a brand. So it's like it's doing the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. So I agree with Jared in the sense that you've got to get to a place where you're comfortable, you're happy, you're optimized, you're efficient. And then put it off to the side, let it live on the shelf for a bit and, and go with that for a while and use that. And then only maybe once a year, once a, a quarter, whatever you want, you can come back and revisit it. But don't be one of those like obsessive sort of busy workers where you're always doing work about work as opposed to doing the actual work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good advice. Good advice. So yeah, um, I'm thinking, I always think in terms of like technology stuff, um, because that always seems to drive and force you know, things to have to change, like Jared mentioned with the drives, right? And running out of drive space and new, you know, new technologies come along that allow us to store more or store it in a different way or store it in a different location. So I know technology always tends to force us to have to kind of revisit some of these certain workflows in our, in our business. I want to, I want to get into some, to some specifics. So I want to ask um, both of you guys kind of for, let's narrow it down again. We could talk about workflow in terms of the whole the whole business and from, you know, client meeting through to, to final delivery. But I want to narrow down in more into the kind of the, 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 the culling and the editing process for a lot of wedding photographers, because I think that's where a lot of wedding photographers get hung up and they struggle and, and lose a lot of time. So for both of you guys, where does it start for you with the workflow in terms of, of images? Uh, you know, I know a lot of shooters that uh, shoot, you know, 10,000 plus images on a wedding day. I know others that are more um, selective. They wait for the moment. How do you guys approach from a workflow standpoint, sort of at the time of capture? How does that look for both of you guys? I'm going to start with Jared. Well, I, I always hear that, that concept of, well, if I, if I shoot less, then I'll have less uh, post-production work to do. And, and I think that's a mistake because the best photographers, at least documentary photographers in history, have always shot more, not less. If you think about people that go and do, you know, big photo stories for Life magazine or for, you know, National Geographic or whatever, they shoot thousands of rolls of film back in the day when they were shooting rolls. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of photos to give a story with 12 images. So 
the, the idea that a photographer would limit their capture in order to avoid having to work hard is a very bad uh, concept. It just, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't hold true with the history of our medium and um, those who are really good at what they do. Uh, I, I, just, I just don't think that that holds water at all. So instead, you just have to have the right mentality when you go into your workflow, your post-production, so that you're not afraid of shooting more. So, and I, I'm not talking about the people who just spray and pray. That's a bad idea just because you're not composing. Right. Um, but I, like I'm waiting for the moment, but I'm not waiting for a moment and, and, and letting one pass me by, assuming that there's a better one coming. Instead, I'm taking a picture of, a, of the best moment that has occurred so far, and then I'm going to take the next best one that occurred so far, and I'm going to take the next best one and the next best one until I have 15 or 20 of the same thing happening, and I'm watching this happen. I, um, when I was in college, I was a grad student, and I had a professor who was really, he, was, he knew every important person in photography that ever existed. Like if, if there was an important person, he was on a first name basis with them. And one of those people was David Hearn, who was a Magnum photographer uh, who lives in, in Wales. Um, but he was, I mean, it, he's, his photographs are everywhere. Um, kind of a name that you don't necessarily know very well, but you would know his photographs. And, uh, and he would show us his contact sheets. And you would watch him, and for an entire 36 roll of film, he would be watching the scene, and it would just slowly take shape. So you would see elements coming in, and, then, uh, and he's taking the same picture for 36 pictures. And he's shooting film, so he's paying for every single one of those shots. And he's watching things, you know, a little kid wanders in and a dog wanders in and then they wander out. And then, you know, different people wander in and he's, he's watching it just for one shot. And in the end, the photograph that he selects out of that entire role, so one photograph out of 36, he selects this image and it's the right image. And it's a great image. And so I learned a lot from that process of watching good photographers edit their own work and find those gems but those gems just again they don't happen by accident they happen with a methodical uh plan to capture the right image and that methodical plan is shoot and shoot and shoot some more until you absolutely have the shot you know i i, I always laugh at the concept of that photographer that that like you see it in a movie sometimes where the photographer will come in and he's like this big amazing photographer and everybody thinks he's He's like the, I don't know, he's the fashion photographer or something. He comes in and he goes, tick, tick, tick. I got it. And then he kind of walks goes, off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. You know, and he's so amazing, he can get it in three shots. That photographer doesn't exist. Any photographer that has that mentality has never become a good photographer and never will be. Like, the, he'll just fall into oblivion at the end of, you know, his lifetime. So, so really, it's about, having the humility to recognize that you don't know that you have the shot until you're back at your computer and you're pouring through the images and then you really see what you got. Mm -hmm. And so 
I, I just think you have to create a workflow that's good enough and gets you moving fast enough that you don't have to fear shooting a lot of images. You can just shoot what needs to be shot to get the best possible shot. And then when you get into your post-production workflow, that's where you really have to streamline and recognize that you're not going to provide all those images to your client. You're going to provide, you know, 5% of what you shoot to your client. Nice. I want to come back because I want to get, get into that next, but I want to get Brian's thoughts just on that. And what, what's your approach on a, on a typical wedding day? How do you shoot? Are you similar to Jared where you're going to like shoot through those moments and not just sort of limit your, your, your shooting because you don't want the, the volume of photos to go through and call and, and sort and edit or... Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't, I don't care about the volume of photos. Like, <laughs> hard drive space is so inexpensive these days that like that should never be a limitation. I don't think, especially hearing Jared talk about photographers that shot film that would do that. It's like really, if anyone has ever had an excuse to shoot less, it was them. Now it's like a bunch of ones and zeros, and you can get a three terabyte drive for like a hundred bucks. So like, mm-hmm. what's your excuse, right? So yeah, I, I agree that there shouldn't be a limit on that, and you shouldn't imply those kinds of boundaries around the way that you photograph. Um, for me editing uh which is again we're talking about the editing workflow um it starts for me in camera and and obviously i mean it sort of sounds obvious but a lot of photographers will just sort of spray and pray and not really think about uh what they're trying to do about the lighting about the composition about exposure about white balance they don't think about those kinds of things and then it therefore gives them more time to have to do, fix them afterwards so i'm more of the kind of photographer where I want to get everything right in camera because I actually shoot raw and JPEG and nine times out of 10, I'm just delivering the JPEGs out of the camera because I'm really focusing on getting it right in the camera while I'm photographing. So I'll use presets in my camera so that I can, you know, photograph different kinds of contrast or different white balances. I always shoot in Calvin white balance, for example, so I can really fine tune and tweak my white balance to where I want to be. So for me, that's a big part of editing because, because I focus on it in the camera. I then have to spend even less time afterwards on the computer with them. Yeah, you hear that old adage, you know, oh, I'll just fix it in Photoshop, right? Which is just a crutch. Like it's just, mm. it's just to me, it's. I agree with you. It's, it's being lazy, right? There's yeah. so many things that you can get it right in camera that will yeah. help then speed you through your your workflow. Jared, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the and the raw versus JPEG? Do you how do you shoot? I, I shoot 100% raw. I, I've ne- I don't think I've ever shot a JPEG knowingly. Um, <laughs> But but I shoot the same way. I mean, we're we're talking about the same thing. It doesn't it, whether you're shooting RAW or JPEG. The point is is that you need to get the proper exposure in the camera, and and not just the proper exposure. I think everybody recognizes that if they could, they should get the proper exposure in the camera. Like I, I would I would feel sad for anybody who thinks ah, I don't need to worry about exposure in my camera. I'll just you know <laughs> I'll, I'll that do that later. later. <laughs> that's that's a really dumb way to think, um, but. Aside from the idea of getting the exposure right, which I think is something that really needs to happen, we're, a, lot of, a lot of what we have to do in post is choose between this image and that image. And, and, and so when you talk about cho- choosing the moment and stalking the moment, just because, so, so you can either spray and pray and then try and find something, or you can look for the moments and purposefully choose what you're shooting. So when I'm shooting, I'm, I'll, I'll quickly, like for instance, there's a, a really good image that I really love. I was in London and I was shooting a wedding on this like old 
farm property and they're getting ready in this old farmhouse and then they're going to go down to this old church and get married. And, and so I had done pretty much everything I could do for the moment. And so I was just wandering around the outside of this old farmhouse and I was taking pictures and I saw a bunch of sheep off in the distance and I thought, oh, I'll go get some pictures of sheep. And so I climbed over the fence and kind of wandered out into the pasture and I was taking pictures of sheep. And then I was taking a big picture of the farmhouse and And then I looked up, and prior to this, I had been inside the house, and I had hung the dress up against the window because I was shooting it out with the window kind of light streaming through it. And I saw the dress in the the window on the right-hand side of the house, and on the left-hand side of the house, the groom was standing in his room looking out the window. So I had the groom looking out the window and I had a dress hanging in the other window. So it was like the implication of bride and groom, but not quite. So it was perfect. Mm-hmm. But I was a long way away. So I, I immediately pulled up my camera, zoomed in as far as I could and took like three pictures. And then I just started running. And then I stopped and I took another picture and then I ran and I stopped. And, I took, and the whole time the groom is looking at me. Because he's like, what is this guy guy doing? (laughs) Because I'm out there taking pictures of sheep. And then I'm running and taking a picture. And they're running. And I look like I'm like, I look like I'm, you know, it's like an Olympic event where you run and then you (laughs) ski shoot or whatever. And so, so I run and I hop over the fence and I take another picture. And after a while, he's really concerned looking at me. And I'm like, no, 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 just keep looking where you were looking. And so he goes back to what he was looking at. And I take this and it was, the, it was probably the last maybe two or three pictures of the series where I finally got exactly what I wanted. But what I was doing before that is I was, I was hedging my bets just in case I didn't get to where I needed to be, I would have something that maybe I could crop into or maybe I could work with. And so that's the way it works all the time in a wedding. Like I'll be during the ceremony, you only need one picture of them holding hands looking at each other. But you take 50 pictures of that because you're constantly looking for the better opportunity or maybe you're, you're, you're realizing that maybe this crop would be better if I leaned over just a little bit and got something for some foreground. So you take a picture of them looking at each other and then you realize, oh, if I just lean this way, I can get that guy's head kind of as a foreground element and that can help mask out this you know, ugly fire alarm that I'm seeing over here. And then I take a picture and then I realize, oh, this is a great frame, but I need to wait for him to smile because he's got kind of a weird look on his face. And so then you take that picture and then you're, so you're kind of, you're constantly manipulating things to get the very best shot in the end. But when you get into the post-production, then it's a matter of just choosing one of those and doing it as quickly as possible. Right. So it's always a process, right? Because that's, you know, when clients wonder, like we saw that you shot, you know, 40, you know, we heard the shutter, you took 50 photos, how come we only see one? You know, it's explaining right. to them that it's a process that we're working to. It's an evolution where, you know, we're, we're working on an idea and maybe we're experimenting with these different angles and different compositions to find the one that's the right, you know, the right one or the best, the best one. So it, it in itself is almost a bit of a workflow. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I tell my clients when they ask me, like, how many pictures do I get? You took a lot. And I say, well, if you ask someone to write you a poem, you wouldn't also want the dictionary handed to you as well. Mm-hmm. That's a good, you know? that's a good so analogy. We, we just provide you with the 50, you know, the, the, the one page of poetry we wrote for you. We're not going to give you the entire English language to go with it. 
Yeah. Not that, I mean, this doesn't matter, but I know people always ask this question roughly on a wedding day, how many, about how many, on an average wedding day, about how many frames would you say you, you guys each typically take? How many be I take or how many yeah. I deliver? How many do you take? And, and then ultimately, what does that look like in terms of delivery? Delivery. Yeah, I'm, I might take 2,000, 2,200, 2,500, um, and then I'll end up delivering 600 to 750, roughly speaking, like for the average wedding day. Okay. Jared, how about you? So that's a tough question. Um, it depends on what wedding I'm shooting, obviously. Sure. So yeah. if, if I'm all alone and shooting my own wedding, uh, like for instance, this one that I was in England for, I didn't have any assistance with me. It was just me. Um, I probably shot in the neighborhood of two to 3,000 images um, for that wedding experience. Um, but if, I ha- if I'm at a big wedding or a longer wedding, um, my team and I could probably shoot up to 5,000 images. Um, but regardless, generally, I deliver between 5 and 10% of what I shoot. Um, so if I shoot you know, 5,000 images, I'll probably provide 500 images to the client. Um, I might get as high as 15% on a short wedding. So if I if I do like a little elopement or something like that, where I'm only shooting 1,500 images or uh, top 2,000 tops, I might provide about 15% of those because there's certain things you just can't get rid of. Right. And so a long wedding has, you know, 500 images delivered, but a short wedding only has 400 images delivered because you, it's not like you can get rid of getting ready yeah. because it was a short wedding. So. Yeah. Yeah, when, I know when we get that question from clients, um, you know, they always say, well, how many, how many images do I get? You know, and they are, they're always worried that somehow they're going to miss out or they, they equate, you know, they want more. They think the, the bigger the number, the more they're, they're, you know, they're getting or something like that. And we always tell them that we strive for quality over quantity and we make sure that what we're delivering is what is required to tell the story of the day and that we're not leaving out important moments, right? We're going to leave out the awkward blinks and the weird expressions and, you know, sometimes, Hey, we, we know, you know what, we're not perfect. And sometimes we, we blow it when it comes to, you know, something changes really quickly and we don't have that time to adjust and maybe we blow an exposure or it's out of focus or there's all those kinds of things. And you know, that they don't, those are images they don't want to look at. They don't want to go through those. That's part of our job that we're doing for them is to help whittle that down to that, to that yeah, final I mean, number, right? Four or 500 images is a lot of pictures to look through. It is. It really is a lot of pictures. Yep. And uh, I mean, 700 is a lot of images. Like, there's no reason someone should ever want to look through a thousand images. It's just, I mean, we're insane for wanting to do it in the first place. And then to ask our clients to do it would be just crazy. So, yeah. yeah. And, and besides that, uh, there, there is a very, there's a, the reality of decision paralysis is very, very uh, real. It's a very big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I provide five images of pretty much the same thing for the client to look at, they're just going to get paralyzed by the process of choosing between five images that look exactly the same. So it's not like uh, it's not helping them to look at five images where they look good in all five images and they can't choose. So they don't print. Yeah. Instead, just show them the one that you think is best and they don't even have to see the rest of them and they'll, they'll choose that one. Yeah, exactly. And so what I do is I'll, I'll choose one smiling and one serious and one of them looking away. Done. Done. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. And then go to the next thing. Yeah, that's good. We had, we actually had, uh, we had Melissa Jill on a while ago and we were talking about albums and things like that. And she, uh, re, uh, uh, recounted her experience choosing brick 
for her home. I don't know if you've heard this story from her or you read about it, but she went in looking at brick for her home and there were just so many choices. Like they just had far too many choices. Um, and then she went to a different store and they only had like three choices and she just found it. That was perfect. It was much easier for her to, to decide. So when it comes to anything like, you know, albums are a perfect example. Like I know my album company offers like about 15,000 combinations of covers and papers and all this, right. And you, like you say, it's that paralysis by just too much, right? So you have to narrow it down for them and help them get. That's part of our process of professional photographer, I think, is is getting, you know, helping them get to that. Yeah, I mean, that down, brick right? store obviously chose the best three bricks and then showed them the bricks and then she chose the brick. And yeah. if we just choose the best of the images, then they can, you know, if I show them 500 images, then I've chosen the best 500. It's easier for them to choose. Yeah, exactly. Now we didn't lose, well, we lost Brian because Brian had to duck out. He had a meeting. So it's just you and I. So I want to get into okay. the next kind of evolution. So we kind of talked about, you know, at, at image capture time, right? When we're actually shooting the wedding. What's next? What's the next step for you in your, in your workflow? You mentioned, you know, you've never lost an image. What steps well, that's do you a big, to, That's a big deal. To back up your so images. The, the workflow, so shooting is its own workflow and, and the process of capturing the right image and the right frame and the right moment is a workflow in itself. But once you have the images um, and, and the workflows of keeping and securing your images starts before you ever start shooting. So my camera has the ability to have two cards in it. Mm -hmm. And I think in this day and age, if you're going to be a professional wedding photographer, you really need to have a camera that has two cards in it. I, I just don't think it's wise for people to be shooting a professional wedding job with one card in a camera. Agreed. Like, you know, whatever. I, I know that they're cheaper cameras. They're easier to get. But if you can't put two cards in that camera, it's probably not professional enough to be shooting a wedding a because wedding, a wedding yeah. is something that does not happen a second time. No, nope. hopefully, hopefully, well, unless you're like <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor or a Kardashian, maybe or something. <laughs> sure, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. but you know, it's it's not you can't lose those files. Yeah, and so the the workflow starts with putting two cards in the camera and shooting two copies of the images to two different cards, so that if one of these cards, because these cards can sometimes go bad. So if a card goes bad, you want to have a second copy before you ever copy it. So people think, oh, well, I should duplicate the files after I shoot them. No, you should duplicate them while, while you're, you're shooting, shooting them. them. Yeah. And then after you get done with shooting, one of those cards goes into a wallet and stays in your pocket. And the other one goes in a wallet and goes to the studio so that they're separated. Mm -hmm. So if I shoot on Saturday night... Then I come back to the studio. So this is the workflow. I'm just kind of going to check through the workflow. I come yep. back to the studio and the cards have been separated out. Right at the wedding, I take all the cards and I take, because they're, they're different kinds of cards. So I've got these. So this is a card wallet here. And you can see that it's got, uh, there we go. You can see that it's got a space where I can put a, an SD card, uh, SD card here, okay. and then a CF card can go over the top of it like that. Okay. So these two cards will have the same images on them, and notice that they're the same size, 16 gigs, 16 gigs. Yep. So I changed two of them at once during the wedding. Once I've shot them, they go upside down like this and like that. That tells me they're shot. 
Yes. Yeah. And that's okay. an important step because I actually had a friend one time and she was working with a second shooter, fairly new to her. And she had asked her, uh, I forget what happened during the, it was during the sort of the chaos of the day and she needed her, she filled up her card. So she needed another card. So she said, oh, they're over there in the card bag. And she went, she grabbed the card and she was shooting it. I think the main photographer was shooting Canon and her, this assistant was shooting Nikon. She went, she grabbed a card out of the thing, not realizing that it was a card that had been spent already. It was from the morning. It was the getting ready for it, didn't she? she? Well, she put it in her Nikon, hit play, didn't, and it showed no images on this card. So she thought, oh, great, there's nothing on this card. She formatted it, and it was the main photographer's uh, card from the morning. So having a, you know, so that I just thought of that story and I thought, oh, that's geez, horrible. that's horrible, right? But because she okay, didn't so, know work for So it. let's back up then, because in that situation, that person would have, A, if they'd been shooting two cards, they would have been covered. Right. Because that yep. person would have taken one of their cards, not the other one. That's right. Yep. Then if they'd turned them upside down, they also would have been covered. Yep. And also, the other thing that I do is I format my cards before the wedding. Right. And so I tell my assistants, if it's, if you put a card in and it, you don't format it there while you're in the, the heat of the moment, you format it the night before. Right. So that's part of your workflow of getting ready for the wedding. You format all your cards. Now I shoot the same cameras. Both cameras are the same. So I have two Mark three cameras. So I can format all of them on a Mark III, and then all of my Mark III is going to work fine. Right. And my assistant has a Mark III camera, and so he's shooting with Mark III. So we don't have to worry about the format being different for a Nikon and a Canon, or a Canon and some other Canon. So we're, I think we're kind of uniform in that way. Right. Um, but at any rate, like I keep my cards. So when I shoot this, this is on my person. So the fact that that photographer left shot cards in a bag somewhere was a real bad mistake. Yep, mistake because number that, one. Yeah. Or mistake someone number want, two. <laughs> someone could steal their, their cameras mm -hmm. and they would get their pictures too. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want that. No. If someone steals my camera, okay, I can replace it, but I can't replace the images. I'll tell you a story. I was, I was in, uh, I went, when I was in grad school, I went to do some work over in Sweden um, for my master's thesis. And while I was doing that, I was traveling. And it was film back then. It wasn't digital. And so I had a bag, and I had mistakenly put my film that was shot in the same bag as all of my camera gear. Well, when I was in Florence, the camera bag got stolen. So I had been traveling for a week and a half at this point, and all of my pictures are gone. Uh. No pictures. Because why? My workflow is stupid. Mm -hmm. I put those images into my camera bag. That's a bad idea. So from that moment forward, from when I was in college forward, I always separated out my images. So if I was, sh and I shot weddings on film for five or six years before I ever started doing digital. And so my film always went in a little satchel on my person. So that if someone stole my camera, they stole my camera, but they didn't get the film. Right. So all, all of my film, finish shooting a roll of film, goes in a satchel on my person. Yep. And then I keep shooting, always. And that, that's a, another issue that she should have, he or she, whoever it was, should have dealt with. Anyway, so, so I put them in here. And then when I come home from the wedding, 
I take this in, this card here and I separate it out so that now I have these two cards separated. Right. One of them stays in the studio in a pile. The other one stays inside of this wallet. And then this wallet goes with me to church Perfect. on Sunday. It stays with me. And then on Monday, it stays with me until these images are secured. Right. Now, so you've automatically got them in two different locations. So if anything right. happens, they're to automatically one, in two different locations. Now, before I leave the studio that night, before I go to bed, I ingest every single one of these cards into my computer. And I actually switch it. I like these for downloading because this, I have more card readers for these. Right. Those are the CF cards that you're holding up. So for right. those who are watching cards. the video, yeah, Jared's holding no, up right. the CF cards. So the yeah. CF cards, I'm. I'm putting CF cards into the computer because I have more CF card readers. Yep. Um, but if I'm traveling because my Apple laptop has an SD reader on it, then I'll switch it and I'll put the SD cards into the computer. So before I go to sleep that night, I'm going to ingest all the images from one of the sets of cards into the computer. And that's going to be put onto my working drive. Now, because I have a working drive that is a RAID 1 system, it's making two copies instantly. So disk 1 and disk 2 are exact copies of each other. So when I put my images onto disk 1, they're automatically on disk 2. Now, some people I know will put it into disk 1 and then grab everything and copy it to disk 2 as a backup. Mm -hmm. But I don't have to go through that step because I have a RAID 1 hard drive system that has two uh, duplicate drives, one on top of the other. Right. And so when I put my images into drive one, they're automatically on drive two. And then before I leave, because it's already been done automatically, I don't have to wait for the second copy to be made. I simply eject drive two and put in drive three. And once I do that, drive one copies to drive three. So now I have two copies on cards. I have the CF card and the SD card, and they're separated. Right. And I also have a Pelican case with a third drive. And so now I have three copies on three different hard drives, two of them in my studio, one of them in a Pelican case that goes to my house. And then the other set of cards is in my pocket at church. So I have, what is that? One, two, three, five copies of my job before I go to sleep. And it doesn't take all that long to do it either. Because remember, copy one and two were done by the camera when I was shooting, and then copy three and four were done simultaneously when I ingest them into the computer, and then copy five was done while I left. Right. So what is this hard drive system that you're using? What are you, what kind of, what's your setup in terms of your hardware? I have a, a company called CRU, uh, Charlie Ricky Umbrella, CRU. Okay. Um, CRU makes hard drive systems, and the one that, when I'm traveling, I have a traveling RAID. It's called a Tough Tech Duo, and it's just a little itty-bitty, it's, it's, it's a beautiful drive. It's this beautiful silver drive um, that has two drives in it, same way as the big one has, but they're, they're laptop-sized drives, so they're okay. two-and-a-half-inch drives. And I do the same thing when I'm on location. So when I'm in London shooting a wedding, I put them onto drive one. They automatically get put to drive two. And then that night, right before I go to sleep, I pull out drive two and put in drive three. And it starts copying drive one to three. And now I've got a third copy. And then that third copy can just be put into a FedEx envelope and sent home. Right. 
So now it's separated. I'm done with the wedding, but I'm going to be traveling for a week. So I send a copy home so that I don't have to worry about it getting stolen from me. Right. So you've kind of covered your all your bases in terms of you you know hard drive or uh, some sort of failure. You've covered yourself there. You've also covered yourself by having it offsite. So if something was stolen or if there was a a fire or a flood right. or something like that. So That's I always right. tell people it's it's a three two one at least you know three copies two different media and one of those offsite or in a separate location from where they made. That's kind of the strategy right. I tell people. And the and the offsite is critical because. No amount of drobos or second copies or third copies will ever help you if someone steals everything you own. Yep. Yeah. I worked in IT for 16 years and I remember uh, we had one client that they were, uh, they had a tape backup. This is in the days of tape backup systems. And uh, she, they had a break in at their office and they had stolen all the, all the computer equipment. So she called me in a panic and she said, how, you know, I've lost, you know, we've lost everything. How are we going to get up and running? I said, no problem. We can replace the hardware. That's not a problem. We just need, you know, we'll put your backup in and we can restore your backup. Well, she had, uh, the tapes had been breaking her daily tapes. And so she was down to one tape and she hadn't gotten around to replacing them. So I asked her, I said, oh, no problem. Where's that one tape? Well, you can guess where that one tape was. <laughs> stolen. It was in the server that got stolen. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so that, and that's that's my biggest problem with like a Drobo is that people think that that's backed them up because they have you know f- all sorts of copies within this one housing, but that's the housing that gets stolen. Yeah. When yeah. someone breaks in, or that's the housing that gets burned up when you have a fire. Mm-hmm. So that's yep. not going to help you. You have to have a second copy now. Um, I, I alluded to the fact that I am backing up online as well. And so I have that RAID 1 that's in my studio. The RAID 1 that's in my studio is constantly synced to the cloud through Google. And so I have a Google Drive, and on that drive, everything that ever gets put on my uh, RAID 1 system here in the studio gets shipped up to Google. And so it takes... I put a wedding of 3,000 images in there. It'll take a good 12 hours to get it up. Mm. But that's fine because I'm sleeping. Yeah, yeah. So when I come in on Monday morning, not only do I have two copies in the studio, uh, well, actually three copies in the studio because one is a card and two are two different hard drives. I've got a hard drive at home and I've got a copy of the cards at home um, actually in my pocket. So I've got... Physically, I've got five copies, but I've also got a copy up in a server somewhere on Google's, you know, internet. Yep. And I, I I'm completely protected. And, and that's this is why, why you've never I've never lost yeah. the file say, because I have say. all that kind of, what's that? This is, that's what I was going to say is this is why you've never, ever lost an image. Yeah. And people look at me when I tell people this and they're like, man, you're insane. You're paranoid. Yep. Yep. I'm paranoid. <laughs> and that's why I haven't lost a file and you have. Exactly. Yep. And it doesn't cost all that much. I mean, you wouldn't have to have all of these copies running around. If you just shot two cards and you separated out the two cards and then you put the one set of cards into your whatever hard drive and then uploaded them to a server somewhere, you'd be fine. Hmm. I mean, I have five or six copies. You could have three copies, but at least have three. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, we had Gary Fong on a while ago and he, he even suggested taking it a step further. He said, take the, the second set of cards. He said, cards are cheap nowadays. 
take those second set of cards and throw them in a safe and put them in a put them in an envelope, label it with that job, throw them in a safe and never touch them again. You know, actually, it's interesting because you, you bring up Gary Fong. When I first started wedding photography, um, it was film. But as I started switching to digital, Gary Fong was the one that was shooting digital at the time. And so I actually went and listened to Gary Fong. I went to his studio because he had like a little workshop. And I actually went to Gary Fong's studio and I watched him work. And I thought, this guy's got, the, digitally, he's got his workflow down. And so I was kind of watching him and seeing what he's did. And I, I took some of his stuff and kind of altered it and put it into my own and, and created my own. But, but I, I, what you were saying that he specifically would shoot cards and they, those cards would not be formatted until he had finished the job and then he would put those back into the and and he he did that early on and so that changed the way i thought about my cards too so i always had and still do have three i have cards enough to shoot three weddings Mm -hmm. before i need to shoot the other ones again so i will shoot on one set of cards and then i can put those away and shoot the next set of cards and then the next set of cards. So I can shoot three weddings without having to replenish. And most of the time, I'm already done by the time I shoot the next wedding. So it's not like I have to go through that. But if I ever have a wedding on, say, on Monday, and then one on Friday, and then one on Saturday, I could get through all of them without having to go through and... and uh, and, and recycle through those cards. Yeah, and that's a good point because I don't know if you've ever encountered this or run across this before, but I, I certainly have, have had it happen to me once before where, um, you know, everything seemed to import fine. Everything, everything seemed to look cool on the surface. And then I got to, you know, the Monday or the Tuesday when I started going through and, and doing the call. And suddenly all the uh, images started to get these yellow stripes across them. Yep. And sure enough, the, the, the image files were, there was a, a, a chunk that came off the card that for whatever reason they imported fine, but they were corrupted. Right. But it wasn't, it, they weren't corrupted on the card. They were just corrupted from the transfer. Yeah. Somehow and the by transfer, transferring them, you're fine. Yep. So, but the, yeah. my point the, the, there was then my backup copies were also corrupted, right? And my offsite copies were, were also corrupted, but the copies that were still on the cards were fine. So I was able to reformat. But if I had gone, say, and left that job for two or three weeks and not touched it, gone and shot over top of those cards and then came back to start working on that job and realized, oh, crap, these files are corrupted. Now I'd be screwed because now I'd written over. So your idea of not touching those cards until you're done with the job is also whether, you know, whether it's, it's forever or at least you don't reuse those cards until you know that job is done. So, again, having enough cards to get you through you know, to the next job. I think that's a critical workflow but, as you well. Know, and, and we talked about early on and today, we talked about knowing what it costs to do a job. And part of the cost of doing a job is having enough equipment. Mm-hmm. It's having backup cameras. I have three cameras. I have two uh, 5D Mark III's, and then I have a 70D. And the 70D is what I use to make little videos and stuff when I, you know, make how-to videos. My video guy uses that 70D, but I keep it in my camera bag just in case something fails. I have a third camera. So having enough cameras, having enough cards to shoot multiple weddings without having to go and reformat it. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. It costs a lot of money, but that's why you have to charge the right amount of money for what you're doing. And I just had a client that someone... 
I wanted to do their wedding for them. They emailed me as somebody that I've worked with for from the Phoenix Symphony, you know, so it's like a as somebody who is a supporter of the Phoenix Symphony. I do a lot of work for the Phoenix Symphony, so I want to take care of them. But they emailed me and they said, hey, you know, I want you to shoot a wedding in Sedona for a thousand bucks. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do a wedding for a thousand bucks and travel to Sedona, pay for gas, pay for an assistant, go through all the processes that I go through to make sure that my files are secured. By the time that job's done, I made nothing. In fact, I paid that client to do it. And yet there's a lot of photographers out there that will do a wedding for a thousand bucks. And they're the ones that only have one set of cards to do the wedding. And so then they're going to have to do. And in order to do a thousand dollar wedding, you've got to do like four of them in a week to make mm-hmm. the right amount of money to make it even make sense to be a wedding photographer. Yep. Um, and so then you have to shoot on this over and over and over again because you're not charging enough to be able to buy enough cards to actually do your job right. So, I mean, it costs money to be in business. And part of that cost is having enough cameras, having enough cards, having enough hard drive space. I can't tell you how many people, oh, pains me. How (laughs) many people have told me that they keep running out of space on their hard drives, so they just put it in random places. So they run out of space. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they run out of space on their working hard drive because they're not fast enough at getting through their job. And so they, they run out of space. They haven't cleared that, you know, the past six months of, of jobs. And so then they're just putting some of their photos over on the Macintosh hard drive. Some of, they're, they're like digging through and they're like, uh, where can I? Oh, here, here's, you know, here's another drive. And then, oh, wait, here's another drive. I'll just put some on this drive. And, and some of them are splitting their wedding and they'll put like half of the wedding on this drive and then they run out of space so that they put the rest of the wedding on another drive. And you're like, oh, gosh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and then they wonder, how do I always have accidents where I lose my files? It's yep. because it's not an accident. Yep. You purposefully lost your files. Are you uh, back to cards for a second? And then I want to get into the culling process because I think that's the kind of the next step. But uh, are you a uh, uh, put all your eggs in one basket guy or do you uh, subscribe to the a bunch of smaller cards? Uh, I like the bunch of smaller cards. So I think that 16 gigabytes for a 20 megabyte file is perfect because it's a pretty decent size of images. Like there's a lot of images that can fit in there, but it's not too many. You know, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 and something to 300 and something images inside of that that, uh, card. And then I uh, have shot with the 5D SR. So that's a 50 megapixel file. So now on that one, I shoot with 32 gigabyte cards. So I kind of like that amount of space. You know, something where you, you have about enough to shoot between 250 to 300 and some odd images. Mm-hmm. That's about right. Now, remember, in the old days, we had 36 images per card. Right. So, or 15, depending on if we're shooting medium format, we had 15 images per roll. And so our eggs were in a lot of different baskets. So if you lost a roll, it wasn't a big deal because you were still in the portrait session. Nowadays, if you lose a card and you're shooting a 64 gigabyte card, you lose a card. That's the whole wedding. So that would be your that would be your reasoning behind not wanting to shoot on the big on the big cards. Like, can I play contrarian? Yeah. 
So I, I like to shoot on bigger cards because sure. I what I find is I think it, the more cards I have to manage or to keep track of increases the likelihood of a card somewhere along the line. Again, you have to have a system to everything, but I, right. but I think just the process of taking the card out or taking both the cards out and then putting another card in the camera. I'll give you a, a scenario that happened to a friend of mine. He was out shooting and in the process of, of taking the card out and putting a new card in, uh, one of the pins got bent inside the, the camera know. and th- he was, he couldn't use that camera anymore after that. Cause the pin actually got bent. Had he just stuck with one big card in there, he wouldn't have been doing the card shuffle sure. in the process of the day. Um, right. I have another friend, she shoots on like eight gig cards and she's just constantly throughout the day shuffling cards. And at the end of the day, she has like, you know, 20 cards that she's trying to like juggle. Yeah, and well, and I think that's and, why you have to, you have to come to a happy medium. You have to find some like, you can't shoot. I have four gig cards that are still in my camera bag. Yeah. From back when I was shooting on a 10D. But I don't use them. I just have them there just in case. Right. So yeah. if for some reason, you know, I, I grabbed my bag and I ran out the door and forgot to go and grab these cards because they were, you know, sitting back on the shelf. I still have cards in every bag. Right. I, yeah. Even bags that are empty that I, you know, like backpack type bags, I have a wallet of four gig cards in there. So I have 16 gigs worth of cards in every single bag because I've just taken all of my old cards and relegated them to the backup scenario situation. So each bag has a little wallet full of 16 gigs worth of space. So that if you just got to a, because I remember early on when I was going to these conferences, one of the people I heard speak first, which kind of helped me to think up some, you know, of my workflow was, uh, oh, who was it? Um, I don't remember who it was. It was somebody, uh, it was Mike Cologne. That's who it was. Oh yeah. Okay. So Mike Cologne had told a story about how he had gone to a wedding and forgotten his cards at home. Like he had been in there formatting his cards and stuff and getting ready for the wedding. And he left them on the counter where he had been doing it. And he went to the wedding and got there and he had one card. No, he didn't have any cards. And I think he borrowed a card from one of the groomsmen or something. And he turned it to JPEG and just like started shooting smaller JPEGs or something and called his wife and said, can you drive out here and bring me my cards? Yeah. Yeah. So I keep I, a little I, wallet in my car with yeah, some cards. So just, just have a wallet that's in every bag that you never use. Yeah. That's always just there just in case, because you never know when mm-hmm. you just, you know, yep. you might yep. have a brain fart and you just don't, you don't do your job. So that, that's what I do with those small cards. But, but you have a good point in that you don't want to be switching out cards and missing the opportunities to take pictures. You don't want to. Um, and to that point, by the way, um, don't shoot until your card is full. Just shoot until you have a break. And then yep. look down constantly and look at that number. And if you have 30 shots left, pull the cards and put new cards in when you're on a break. That way yeah, you're not missing tip. the kiss because you were changing cards. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. like I always look at my numbers right before the wedding and make sure that I swap out. So I have a fresh set of cards for the wedding itself because it doesn't, you know, you can't pause during that. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, I switched to the 64 once, you know, with the dual cards and everything like that. I switched to the 64 gig cards in my cameras and then I'm usually fine. I, I can get through the day and not have to swap, you know, because I'm usually shooting, right. you know, both bodies with 64 gig cards. So usually I'm fine. And, and, and if you have two slots in your camera and you're shooting both of those slots simultaneously, the same file, I shoot raw to both. Yeah, I do too. So I'm getting a raw image on both cards. If you do that, you're going to be fine. Even if you have 64, now you have two of them. So if one of your cards go bad, this other one's probably not going to go bad unless there's some, you know, horrible situation where the camera gets stolen or or dropped off a cliff or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. There is that. There is always that element, I guess, is if something happened to the actual cameras. But again, I'll, I keep them on my body. Right. Or if I'm going to put them down anywhere, I take the cards out. That's right. Right. And keep them on my body. So again, yeah. like you had mentioned, right. So they can steal the cameras, but at least they're not getting the images. So yeah. At every, when someone's developing a workflow at every stage, their number one priority needs to be file security. And then their number two priority needs to be efficiency and getting it done. Right. So th- those are the two ultimate. So at every stage you should say, how am I key? How is this stage helping me keep my files secure? And how is this stage being streamlined so that I can get this done? If you think of those two things, whenever you're creating your ultimate workflow, uh, you'll, you'll do a much better job and you'll do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're, we're going a little bit longer than our usual show, but I want to, I want to keep you on for a little bit. If you've got a few, sure. you've got a few yeah, more minutes, because I want to get into the next step, which is really kind of the, where I think a lot of photographers get bogged down and spend a lot of their time, right. And, 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 and burn up that, you know, any profit that they made on that wedding gets, gets sucked up in this black hole we call kind of the editing process. Right. So what are, what are some I don't know, quick tips. Again, we could probably go and do a whole other hour just on this process and maybe we'll have you back on again to do that. But what are some things that you advice you can give to wedding photographers to help them with the culling and then with the editing process? What are some things you've experienced in your career that have led well, you to um, develop? I, I think philosophically you can do a lot. Um, if you, if you just follow a couple philosophies, you can really shave off a lot of time and, and, what I've found is that most people have the, the biggest problem that most people have is that they don't they don't shoot the way they or they don't edit the way they shoot. And so if you think about the way you edit in your mind and in the camera as you're photographing, um, you don't constantly second guess yourself when you're shooting. You just shoot. Mm-hmm. You take a picture and then you move on and you take another picture and then you move on and you take another picture. But when people come back to the editing process and they start selecting images, they look at one image and they pick it and then they go down the road about three or four pictures and they pick that one and then they go, wait a second. Oh, I don't know. And then they go back to the older one and they look at that one and then they come back to the newer pick and they look at that one and then they try and compare them and they're like, I'm not sure which one. And they they start going back and forth, back and forth, trying to figure out, you know, A or B, A or B, A or B. And they're just wasting a lot of time. When in actuality, if they realize I'm a photographer and I'm pretty good at taking pictures, so they already have the skill set to make selections because the art of photography is really the art of making selections, visual selections. That's all it is. If you kind of strip away everything else about photography, lighting and all that composition and stuff, really, in the end, it's all about making a decision. 
as to when you're going to take the picture and from what angle. And that, that's what you're doing is you're making a decision. You're making visual decisions. And so if you can get to the point where you edit your images the same way that you would photograph them, you're going to make it, it's going to happen faster and it's going to be better because you're going to go through your editing process and you're going to see an image, you're going to like it, you're going to have a, a gut reaction to it, so you're going to pick it and then move on. Right. And stop second-guessing yourself and don't worry about it. That's it. That's the one. And just keep moving. And, and sometimes people will say, well, what if there's a better image? What if I should have you know, done a little bit more investigation to figure out if there, you know, this image was better than that image? And my answer is, it doesn't matter. It really does not matter to the client whether this image is 1% better than that image. You know, it doesn't matter. They, they're not going to see the other image. Pick the image that gives you the best, best gut reaction right off the bat and deliver it. And right. be so done trust your it. gut. Go with yeah, your instinct. Trust your gut. Yeah. So uh, that's, I think if you follow that method or that concept throughout all of your editing decisions, you'll make better choices about what you're doing. Another thing that most people seem to fall into the trap of is looking at one image at a time. Mm-hmm. So they'll pull an image up and then they'll just use the arrow keys and they'll kind of cycle through the images. And the problem with that method is that you can't actually make a decision between this image and another image if you're only looking at one of them. Right. And so in Lightroom, I use what's called the survey mode where I'm looking at six or eight images at a time mm-hmm. so that I can quickly compare. And, and what I'm doing is I'm comparing the um, composition first off. Because I, so my, there's a small workflow inside of the bigger workflow, which is anytime I'm reviewing images and trying to make a decision as to which I'm going to select, the workflow is this. I have to look good first, then they can look good. So I look at the composition of the image first. If the composition is bad and it's not savable, I am not going to select that image. I don't care how good they look because I don't look good. Okay. Right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at those six images that are up on my screen and find the best composition. Then once I find the best composition, I'll look within that series of maybe three images that have that great composition, and I'll look for, you know, the moment in it. You know, is, is he about to kiss her? Is he really kissing her? Is there a smile? Whatever. And then, then they can look good within it. And then I'll pick that one and move on. And so I'm trying to pick only one or less images per six or per eight. Okay. So that's, that's the workflow. And if you, if, you, if you do that, if you're constantly looking at things in a comparative sense, you're always comparing images for, you know, one against another, you'll make those decisions faster. But there's no law that says that if you pull up six images, you have to choose one. All six could be ones, you just say. All six of them could be rejects. Yep. Yeah. Now, you do a process where you only include the picks, right? Like, you don't go That's through right. and reject. Because I see right. people Re- do that too, right? To, to me, a reject is a waste of time. Because if you shoot, let's say you shoot 3,000 images and you're going to deliver 500 to your client. You can either put, you can press the P key 500 times, or you can press the X or the reject key 2,500 times. And I'm going to win that race. Right. And it's amazing if you just sat down and pushed a key 2,500 times, 
it'll take a long time. It ta- to, do, to do that at a normal rate, it takes about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's not even making decisions. That's just pushing a key. Just hitting a button, yeah. So get rid of that whole step and only pick. And then it's plus, assumed that anything Plus is it just makes you feel better about yourself. Yes, yeah. So. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Positive reinforcement over negative yeah, reinforcement. I mean, the, yeah. it, just the idea of saying I suck 200 or 2,500 times, that makes me depressed just yes, thinking yeah. about it. Absolutely. Now, do yeah. you do all your calling in Lightroom? Or do you use another tool like Photo Mechanic? Or? No, I, everything's in Lightroom. And, and people have constantly said to me, well, I use Photo Mechanic, and then I transfer into Lightroom. And my answer is, that's great. I understand that Photo Mechanic is really fast at delivering the images for you to look at. And I understand like a press photographer's need to, to look at things really fast. Um, but if you are a wedding photographer and you're going to look at your images tomorrow, you have all night for it to import those, build the one-for-one previews, and have everything ready so that when you come in, it's actually just as fast as Photo Mechanic once it's ready to go. Yeah. And so my point is, is that the, the Photo Mechanic type photographer, they're actually saving time in Photo Mechanic to look at the images, but then the transfer to Lightroom to do the rest of the work is actually eating up all the time that they save. Right, because they, so they, they might as be well just to, stay in the same ecosystem. Yeah, they could be ready to be editing at that stage, but now they have to wait. Right. To so, so they yeah. end up. So, in the end, someone who goes from photo mechanic to Lightroom is spending the exact same amount of time as the person who starts in Lightroom and just does it all in Lightroom because there's no transfer of images. And it, <clears throat> my policy is this: stay in one ecosystem as long as humanly possible. Only go to another ecosystem when you absolutely have to. And that includes Photoshop. I won't go to Photoshop until I absolutely have to. As soon as I've exhausted all possibilities of staying in Lightroom in RAW, I'll go to Photoshop if necessary. And sometimes it's necessary. You know, you got to do a little nip and tuck. You got to do some serious skin editing. You've got to, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you got to go into Photoshop, but only once in a great while. Yeah. Another question I have for you. To DNG or not DNG? I, some people will go to DNG right at the beginning as they import. I just, I just select and edit all of them in the original raw. And then when I'm done, I convert them all to DNG. Okay. And the reason I go to DNG is because the DNG then contains all of the metadata. So I've got a raw file, but the inside the raw file is my keywords is my metadata on what I did to the file. That way I don't have to worry about a regular file and a sidecar file or a regular file and whatever's in the Lightroom catalog. The DNG itself is its own little catalog. And so now I can sort, I can actually go to my desktop and look at the finder or the explorer and type in a keyword I'm looking for. And I can find a DNG without having to be inside of Lightroom. Right. As long as it's in a an attached drive somewhere, I'll find it because the keywords show up inside of the DNG. So I like the DNG as an archive. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I do it at import, but I I hate the way Lightroom has changed that process because now it's, it's, it's slowed down my workflow because now it takes two to three times the amount of time to to do that conversion than it used to take. Mm. So yeah, I've, I've always just imported the original raw images, done all my work. And then at the very end, highlight the, 
300 images I'm going to deliver and convert those. So now I'm converting 300 instead of 3,000. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah, that might yeah. be a that might be a tinker that I need to do. Yeah, and my, it's and it's not hard workflow. to do because once you and the, the other thing I don't like about importing DNGs is that you're having to make a copy of them. Whereas if you're just importing the original raws, you just point to them, it imports them. So, and that's one of the reasons it does it faster than if you make a DNG. So, so I don't, I don't see a problem with either of those methods. It's just one has more time spent at the front end bringing the DNG in and making a copy. And I, I just don't see the need for it. So, yeah. So what does it take you typically to edit, say a a typical wedding, say around the three, three, 4,000 images mark, uh, how long does it typically take you to go through the culling process and get down to your, your final four or 500 uh, images? So the culling process for me is if I, if let's just say I have a 3000 image wedding, I would say that that probably takes me about 40 minutes to an hour to get through all those images. But again, I'm just, I'm rocketing through them and I'm just looking at six images at a time. And I actually have a, uh, let's see if I can pull this. You see this? Okay. So we've got a, he's showing us, it looks like a UFO. Yes. It's the UFO. See, if it goes like this, it goes. It's like something out of the Jetsons. Yes. Yes. So this is called a shuttle pro two and you can see right there. Shuttle, the shuttle pro Pro two. Okay. So the shuttle pro two is just, it's a keyboard directly. It's like a game console or whatever, but it's, it's made for video editing. Um, but you can assign the keys very specific things to do. And so in my case, I assign it to pick and to reject and to one, two, three, four stars and, and shift and command and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not looking at my keyboard looking for a keystroke. I just, it's, it fits nicely in your hand. Like it's super ergonomic. Like you can, okay. it's yep. just, see how it just like, it's, it's actually more comfortable to rest here than it is to rest on your, you know, table. Right. And so I just leave my hand there and I know by feel where everything is. And so the with a keyboard shortcut replicator, then you are able to tell it to do uh, macros as well. And so one of the macros I have assigned on one of the keys is to give me the next six images in Lightroom. So I just simply push one button and it throws away it, it. Well, dismisses the six that I'm currently looking at and grabs the next six and puts them up in survey mode. So I just push one button and six images appear on the screen. I choose one, push a button again, six more, choose one. So literally out of, let's say I had 6,000 images, I only have to push that button 1,000 times and I've got all of them done. Right. So it it cuts that process because otherwise you have to go down and click on the first image and then shift click and then go to the next set of images you want to choose and click on that and then it brings them up. And it's a slow process to kind of go through those images. But instead, I just tell it, I want six images. It pops them up. I do a little editing on those. I mean, I select them. And then I push the next one, six images. I go through and select those. Same thing. I just keep going through them. And it's, it's, like, it's like playing cards in Vegas. You know, you're just, someone just dealing out the cards gives you six cards to look at. You choose one. They give you six more. I don't want any of those. So you swipe them off and the next set. And you just keep going through them like that. Um, I find it to be a very, um, exciting way to edit. So I turn on some good music and I just start watching those images come by and I don't stop. That's one of the keys is not stopping. Um, because 
when you if you if you work on say the first half of the wedding and then you take a break and go away for a couple hours or maybe do the rest tomorrow when you come back you don't remember what you've selected from before mm, so you got to lose and that so, momentum yeah so you lose that momentum and you lose the ability to look back and say okay I don't need any more images of Uncle Tom because I've already photo I've already got some of him so you can leave stuff that's not all that good on the cutting room floor because you know you've already got the images that you need of that person. But if you give too much time in between editing sessions, then you don't really know what you've selected and what you haven't. So just I, I just locked my door back when I was working at my home. Now I shut my editing door so that I don't have any random, because I have other people that are in the studio. And so I don't want any any kind of distraction. So I just put some music on, turn it up loud, and I just go for an hour. Turn off my phone. I don't answer emails. I don't look at it. I just go. Yep. So about an hour. Okay. So it gets about an hour to get through that. Nice. Yeah. And do you edit, do you, do you do the calling kind of immediately, like kind of the day after or the next day after a wedding? Or I know no, some photographers that no. like to tell I, I import them immediately. Um, so when I get home from the wedding that night, I put them into the hard drive. As soon as they're in the hard drive, I start the import process and I leave. Yeah. So after I've started the import process, I've swapped that drive. I'm on my way out with a Pelican case that has my case full of images here. And I have a hard drive right here. So this is, that's a hard drive. Okay. So it just has a hard drive in it. I just take Mm -hmm. that hard drive and I walk out the door with the hard drive and the cards and Lightroom is busy importing the images, building one for one previews, building smart previews. Um, it's even putting them into a collection and putting them on the web um, so that I can look at them on my iPad over the next day or so if I'm interested or if I want to send out like one image that I really like, I'll just kind of hunt for the best image and on Lightroom mobile, I'll just kind of do a quick version of it and then mm-hmm. I'll send it out on Instagram or put it up on you know their website or wherever. So it's, so it's handy to have it on my iPad. But I don't really look at the images until maybe even a week later. Um, But the only thing I will do immediately is just go through and look at all the images to make sure that there's no corruption. Right. So if you just scan through and do some checking and zooming in on things to make sure it's good, then I'll just wait. Because I like to divorce myself from the images because I'm the one that's doing the selecting. I like to pretend it wasn't me that shot them. Hmm. And so by, by waiting a week, I'm able to kind of look at them with critical eyes and not be so married to the work that I won't reject an image because I shot it. Right. You might have an emotional, more of an emotional attachment the next day to an image because of something that happened or something that was going on in the moment, whereas a week removed, maybe that's, you've forgotten about that. So now, like, say you can look at it more with that critical. Right. That critical. So by, by having it on my iPad, I'm able to do like, Oh, I really like this image. I want to send it out to him. So that that emotional attachment that I have to one image, I can just go find that moment, find it, do a little editing inside of Lightroom Mobile and post it. That's easy enough. To, that's an easy enough to do. Yeah. Um, but I want to wait on my selecting and my real work on that wedding for about a week so that I have I, I remove myself and I'm a better editor that way. Yeah. A question for you about catalogs. I forgot to ask during this. Are you a one catalog for like master catalog or do you do a separate catalog for every for every job or 
I have a, I, I'm a master catalog, so I have a master catalog, and then everything comes into the master catalog, and then when it's done, it leaves its, its own catalog. So okay. in the end, they, each job has its own catalog at the end, hmm, okay. so that I can later on pull it up. But in the beginning, everything goes through the master catalog, um, because I, you can train a catalog just like you could train a dog. You know, and you can train the catalog to do what you want it to do and to send stuff to the right places, put stuff on your Facebook page, put stuff on your blog. All that stuff can be automated from one catalog. But then as soon as you go to another catalog, you have to set all that up again. Right. So that's really annoying. Plus, Lightroom Mobile at the moment only connects to one catalog. Yeah, I know. That's a a bit of a pain. That's annoying, actually. I hate that. But, But it... But by using one catalog, I'm able to connect anything and everything I want to Lightroom Mobile so that I can constantly use, you know, because I, you know, I go to baseball games for my son all the time. But he's not always on the field. You know, there's a lot of times he's in the dugout and I'm not interested. So <laughs> I, I'm flipping through photos. I'm, I'm doing all that kind of stuff. When I'm at a baseball game or while I'm waiting for something at the DMV or whatever. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I have to rethink mine a little bit because I'm I've been doing a catalog per job. Right. And then once once that job is done, I, I take all just my picks and those go into a I have a master wedding catalog that houses all of my weddings, primarily because of the, the Lightroom mobile thing. Um, right. Because it can only sync with one. So I kind of do mine backwards. I start with just a catalog for each job. And then I'll import to a master catalog once I'm all done of just the finished stuff. So I know that that master catalog is kind of just the finished stuff. Right. But so. imagine how effective Lightroom Mobile can be if you can actually utilize it as a workflow product as well. As Instead, right now, what you're using it as is kind of like a portfolio. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I can use it as a portfolio and as a workflow tool. Yeah. So it has me rethinking it for sure. So yeah, it's, it's you know, useful. It's and, and it's fun too. I enjoy, I enjoy being able to come in here, import the job and then just walk away. And all I have to do is have my little, you know, iPad Yeah. and I can be, I can come home and get into bed and, and my wife will be like, how'd the wedding go? Well, <laughs> Here here's go. a couple, <laughs> you know, and I just pull it up. And as it's uploading at my studio, images are popping in here. So I can mm-hmm. show, like, this was a cool image. Or that was cool. And I don't even have to have my computer with me. Yeah. I've gotten to the point where I it used to be that I was just everywhere with my laptop. But now with Lightroom Mobile, I, I don't have to take my laptop everywhere anymore. I, I, a lot of the times, I'll just go home with just the iPad. That's all I'm walking home with. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking more and more at Lightroom Mobile, um, and yeah. uh, I'm more and more impressed. I just wish they'd allow you to connect more than one catalog to it. Well, and the other thing problem, that I but... wish they would do is allow a laptop to be seen as a mobile device. That mm. would be cool. Because mm-hmm. if, if a laptop was a mobile device, then you could synchronize stuff to it the same way you synchronize stuff to Lightroom Mobile. Because right now, you know, the catalog is at the studio. And if I'm on my iPad, I work on an image and it sends it back to the catalog at the studio. And when I get back to the studio, the catalog studio is all set. Mm-hmm. But my laptop has to have its own catalog because it's not seen as a mobile device. If I could just open up Lightroom Mobile on my laptop and yeah. work on it, it would do that. Now, you can kind of trick it 
to some degree because you can everything that goes on to Lightroom Mobile also goes on to Lightroom Mobile's web portal. I was going to say, yeah, you could use the web interface. So you can use the web portal, but it's a little bit, the, the web portal is very, very basic at the moment. And so yeah. it doesn't have all of the abilities that Lightroom Mobile has. So I just you, wish that you could open Lightroom itself as you, a, you know, as, as Lightroom on, you know, open the yeah. actual program of Lightroom inside of your laptop and just connect to Lightroom mobile and then just use the mobile stuff Yeah, you have know, you and work on it completely, but mobile. Yeah. Have you experimented with putting your Lightroom catalog in Dropbox? I, I've experimented with it, but it's just too slow a synchronization for it's, it's easy to synchronize your, uh, your images. Them, I mean, your, your catalog, cause the catalog is super small. Right. But what takes the time is uploading all those previews and smart previews. Those are the difficult things to, to work with. Mm-hmm. And so what, what you find is that you'll, you'll spend like, I mean, if you're only doing one job per, not a problem because those smart previews can upload pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're doing a master catalog, by the time you're finished synchronizing, you could have just grabbed the disc and brought it over right yeah and so it it takes a long time to synchronize those so it's a little problematic in that in that respect but yeah awesome well we're we're starting to approach the like hour and a half mark which which we usually try to keep the show about an hour so we've run a little bit long so i think we got to have you back on because i think we could go even further on a lot of this stuff but i i think we've given we we just did a marathon we just did a marathon of, of just the beginning part really we haven't even talked about you know we haven't gotten into the whole editing which again i think is a we could do a whole other separate show i think just on the editing so sure if you're game to come back on for another show we'd love to have you on just to talk about the editing stuff because i think sure we'll lot, do it again there's a lot that we could go in there so any just quick i know we've already given some really um, good advice and some good tips but a couple of quick tips that you can give people that might help them um kind of in you know sort of a tease for where we might go with the editing stuff but just a couple of quick tips that you can give people for the editing so once they've well, done that culling made their selections then the in the editing stage yeah i think the editing is one of the things that people get too um involved in is just perfection mm-hmm. and and you really can't try and be you know tinkering with it to the point that everything's perfect um it needs to be good it needs to be great but it doesn't need to be perfect because your clients can't see the difference between good and great. And they definitely can't see the difference between great and perfection. Yeah. Um, and so there's that law of diminishing returns as to when is it good enough that the client can't see the difference. And that's where you have to stop. Because if you go any further than where the client can't see, you're just wasting your time. Yeah. So you got to keep that in mind right off the bat. Um, just think law of diminishing returns every time you work on an image and hopefully you'll find where that is and stop. Um, but the other thing to do is you can, by, by using presets and by synchronizing, those are two things that if you're, you're constantly using the sync tools um, inside of Lightroom and if you're constantly using presets to make sure that you're not doing things that you've done before, um, those are the best ways to speed through the process of, of editing. And you'll be, you'll be surprised that if you design your presets right so that they're not doing everything, they're just doing, you know, small things. They're just, you know, like, for instance, a preset shouldn't add black and white, a sepia tone, and a vignette all at the same time. It should give you a black and white that you like, 
and then you should have a set of different sepia tones as different presets, and then you should have a set of vignettes as different presets so that you can click and get an infinite number of different looks out of, say, nine different presets. You can get a lot of different looks out of those right. nine By presets. By combining them. Um, but if you, if you design the presets right, and then you use the synchronization method, you can synchronize and edit a lot more images at one time than you think you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I constantly, when I'm doing lectures in front of people, I'll show people, I'll edit an entire wedding. So I'll select every image from the wedding, and I'll edit all of them at the same time. And people will think, no, there's no way that's going to work. And then in the end, I kind of cycle through them, and they're almost all done. And then mm-hmm. it's just a few little tweaks here and there on different sections to do. So you can synchronize a lot more than you think you can. People generally think, oh, I can only synchronize these four images because they are exactly the same. Yeah. And that's not the case. So that, those are the places that we would want to go when we talk about developing and working on images in the editing process. Awesome. That sounds good. Well, we're going to have you back on definitely to dig into that. Cause like I say, that could be a whole, we could do a whole other show just on that. So, yeah. That so, is um, I'm actually going to be, um, on creative live this summer. Excellent. So it'll be in July, mid July. And I'll actually be talking about mobile, uh, workflow and photography. So oh. Lightroom mobile and how to get your images back and forth between computers and iPads and cameras and all that kind of stuff. So that'll be fun. And uh, also, at the end of the summer, I'm going to be in Prague. Ah. So those who want to come and learn how to do lighting and, and work with models and take great street photography and have seven days of awesome travel in Prague, um, you, can go to, you can go to my website, jaredplatt.com, or you can go to uh, mzed, that's uh, Monty Zucker, M-Z. Mm-hmm ed.com and uh look up the Prague masterclass it's me and bob davis so oh, two fantastic. instructors and uh it's all that's a lot of fun we have a great time once oh, a year we great. go somewhere interesting and that, oh. this year it's Prague. that sounds so, fantastic i would yeah. i would love to be able to join you i don't i can't at that time of year but i would love yeah. to one of these one of these days that sounds awesome so that's in september Excellent. So we'll, we'll definitely link to that um, in the show notes as well. So if you're interested, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity because, yeah, you are the workflow guy, but you're also an amazing photographer, too. So, you know, people want to learn, you know, from the best a uh, couple of good guys to go to Prague with for sure. So excellent. Cool. Now we're going to skip the listener question because, again, we've run a little bit long, so we'll skip over that this week. Um, normally, we've also got a uh, where we you know have a, our picks of the week. So um, you've got an interesting pick in here um, that I thought was kind of neat. I haven't seen this before. So what's your pick of the week? So there is a Google application for phones um, that I just discovered a few weeks ago that I love. Um, and it's, it's the arts and culture um, app. And it's just all it is is it's uh, it's like a it's like you get to visit museums all over the world, and you can see their full on like you you get to see all of their um, statues and the the photographs and the paintings and they even have views like you can go in and look inside so like you're inside of the, the oh museum. cool yeah so they have like yeah. the google places view or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. so it's tours. like it's like experiencing google maps inside of museums and so you just take your phone and 
put it on your daily, you know, every day I do whatever. Um, and, and add that to your daily regimen of things that you do when you're just putzing around on your phone. And maybe stop looking at Facebook and look at some beautiful paintings instead. Because mm. what I think is that too many wedding photographers look at wedding photography too much. Right. Yep. And then senior portrait photographers look at too much senior portrait photography. And so my suggestion is branch out, go into other genres. And this is a great app to be able to do that, to go out and, and look at things, not even in photography, just sculpture. Look at, you know, go look at Bernini, go look at Caravaggio, go look at, you know, I mean, go look at some actual really amazing artists that have stood the test of time, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, looking at the latest craze from, you know, photographer X that has been has been in business for five years and is you know everybody loves their work and they're doing great but you know what they're a flash in the pan and they're going to be gone five years from now yeah but caravaggio is going to be around forever yeah less smoke bomb photos and more good works of art exactly (laughs) that's a great that's a great reference a timely reference Excellent. I've no, a lot that's an excellent pick. I'm definitely going to get that app on my phone because, um, yeah, I made that recommendation in my lighting class recently is, you know, for students to go out and look at art, look at some of the, like the Caravaggio and some of those, right? And, and uh, so that's an excellent app. Yeah. So anyway, that's my fun app. I've, I've, I've enjoyed it. Every once cool. in a while, I just pop that up and get inspired by something. And you can zoom in to the point that you see the, like, the little chunks of, of uh, oil paint and stuff. I mean, they've really done a great job at it. So awesome! Yeah, that's great. So if you don't have the funds or the or the money to go travel and go to some of those places, that would be a first option is go to see those places and go see them in you know in person. That but would if you be can't, great. And Prague has some it. great museums too, so you can mm-hmm. go to museums in Prague. There you go. Kill a couple birds with one stone. Yeah. Excellent. Well, my pick this week, um, I think I've, I think I've picked it before, but I wanted to pick it again just because we're talking about workflow, um, and that's a product called Motiboto. Um, and it is for Lightroom, uh, and it is basically similar to um, what Jared had had mentioned. Um, it's basically a keyboard um, shortcut device. Um, if you're if you're watching on uh, if you're watching on the videos, I'll, I'll hold it up here. So it's just basically a skin. Um, the skin goes over your um, goes over a little keyboard, and it's basically like it introduces touch typing for Lightroom. So basically, all the major sliders and different controls are all attached and it's uh, works really, really good. I've been using it for a number of years and it's really sped up my workflow just in editing and, and, and uh, even culling and all of that. So that's the solution have, that I use. Do you have a different keyboard for that and then one for typing or do you have, do you yeah. just. So this is just a skin. It's just a, it's just a um, skin that goes over top of a. Right. But do you, do you maintain keyboard. two different keyboards or do you. I just... do. Yeah, so I have another keyboard below here that I use, and then this is just a separate Bluetooth keyboard that I use just for when I'm editing. Right, yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Because yeah, I, so I, really I would handy. always hate to have that thing in front of me if I was just typing a letter or something. But Yeah, that's... no, yeah, so I have it as a separate keyboard, but it is just a skin, so you could, when you're not editing or whatever, you could just peel it off your keyboard if you had just the one right. the one, uh, the one keyboard. So that's a solution that's uh, David yeah, any, Quinn. Anything you can do to to get rid of the process of having to click more Mm -hmm. and slide more and those types of things those are such time killers and they give you carpal tunnel too oh yeah so the more the more you can have some kind of a button arrangement to do the things that you normally do just uh, 
I, I, I can't live without my Shuttle Pro 2, and I'm sure that you can't live without your Motibu. Yeah, Motibodo, yes. Motibodo. So spell it. Moti, so M-O-T-I-B-O-D-O. M-O-T-I-B-O-D-O. B-O-D-O. Motibodo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those kind of things I think are invaluable. Probably, those are probably the best investment someone can make other than a good camera. Because obviously you need a good camera to start off. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, good picks again. We'll put links to all those things in the show notes for this episode. And that brings us, sadly, um, to the end of another episode of TWIP Weddings. Um, If you're listening on our website, please subscribe to the show using the box on the right. Um, Also, be sure to sign up for our email list to be notified of new episodes and get exclusive subscriber bonuses. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or comments about the show, you can reach us directly by using our contact form. Just click on the Contact Us menu at the top of the page. So before we uh, ditch out of here, um, Jared, where are you, where, what do you've got coming up? You mentioned a couple things you've got coming up, but uh, what are some other things, other resources where people can find you online and see your great photography and learn about your workflow and all that good stuff? Well, pretty much everything is jaredplatt.com. Um, if you want to find me on Facebook, you can find me with at Jared Platt. You can find me on Twitter at Jared Platt. You can find me on Instagram at Jared Platt. So just the word Jared Platt, J-A-R-E-D-P-L-A-T-T. That's, that's how you find me. And if uh, people want more tips on Lightroom, uh, I would suggest they go to jaredplatt.com and just sign up for the newsletter. And, and then they'll get advanced warning when I'm going to be at some kind of a conference or when I'm going to be in their neck of the woods if uh, they'll, they'll find that out. Um, but the next places I'm going to be will be Creative Live this summer. And I will be at a big workshop in uh, Prague in the fall, in September. And then I'll also be out in New York at Photo Plus. On, we're, we'll actually be doing a full day workshop in New York at Photo Plus um, the day before Photo Plus opens um, as part of Photo Plus is doing a new thing. So, so anyway, there, there's going to be an extra full day worth of workshop um, from me on workflow at photo plus in new york in october so awesome well that is fantastic again if anybody is looking for more training in that area jared is the guy to go see so if you need help in that workflow area definitely check his stuff out again we will link to every uh, everything that he mentioned on the on the uh show notes for this episode of course if you're looking for brian or robert um, we'll put their links to their stuff uh they weren't able to join us brian had to duck out and robert wasn't here today but we'll link to their profiles and if you're looking for me um you'll be able to find me my website is momentsanddigital.com and i'm at bruce clark uh, with an e at the end of clark on most of the usual social networks except for snapchat because there already was a bruce clark so i'm bruce clark too if you're looking for me on the Snapchats. Um, But otherwise, that's where you'll find me. And of course, be sure to visit our website at thisweekinphoto.com for our show and all the other great shows on the TWIP network. And thanks again for listening to TWIP Weddings, raising the bar one wedding at a time.